Good morning. Happy Thursday. Every day is going to feel like Sabbath, just so you know. Who here has been to GYC before? Raise your hands. Okay. All right, that's probably two-thirds. How many of you here are in high school? Let's see. Raise your hands if you are in high school. Okay, how many of you are in college? All right, and post-college? Okay, very good. My name is Angelo Grasso. Um, I don't think I see any familiar faces. If I should be seeing familiar faces, I apologize, but I don't think I see any familiar faces. I am an instructor at Atlantic Union College in Massachusetts. Has anyone here, is anyone here from the Northeast? Any Northeasterners? Okay. Anyone here from the West Coast? A few West Coasters. South? Oh, some Southerners. Atlanta, what area? Georgia area? Okay. Um, what am I missing? Midwest? Oh, okay. Plenty of Midwesterners. What is Minneapolis considered? Midwest? Okay. I've never been here before, so it's really a privilege to be here to share with you all. Let's just begin with a word of prayer. Precious Father in heaven, Lord, this morning as we open your word, I pray that your spirit will be our teacher. I pray, Father, that you will open before us the principles of true biblical discipleship and that, Father, we will make a commitment to follow you for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, just to give you a little history, uh, when I was 17 years old, I committed my life to Jesus, 100%. I was an academy student, I'd, I'd gone through the whole high school experience, and when I was 17, during a summer of literature evangelism, God spoke to my heart, and He said, I want you as my own. And so at age 17, I completely committed my life to Christ. And since then, I've been on an adventure in my relationship with Jesus. I would like to say that it's been all uphill in the sense that it's gotten from one victory to another victory to another victory to another victory. But I must confess that it has not, that has not been the case. In my journey with God, I have hit some brick walls. In my journey, in my relationship with Christ, I have hit rock bottom. And it's the principles of discipleship that have kept me on the path of salvation. And I want to share with you all during these these three seminars some principles of discipleship that have allowed me to endure and to not give up. The most essential principle about your Christian life is this. Never give up. When you fall, get back up. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was telling His disciples the signs of His coming. They asked, what would be the signs of your return? And Jesus began to give this prophecy. He said, in the end time, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Are there wars and rumors of wars today? Jesus went on and He said, in the end times... Nation shall rise against nation. There will be famine and pestilence in diverse places. Is there famine and pestilence in diverse places today? Today, in the world that we live in, thousands of children die every day from starvation and disease in this modern age that we live in. So I believe that we are living in the end times. Jesus went on to say that Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. He went on to say that you, my disciples, will be persecuted. You will experience tribulation. And then Jesus says one of my favorite passages. He says, but he that endures till the end will be saved. The secret to salvation is endurance. To endure means to hold on through the rough times. 
Today what we're going to do is we're going to profile the life of some disciples, the journey of discipleship, the journey of the biblical disciples, and we're going to talk about some of their successes and some of their failures and just the principles of spiritual growth and discipleship. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 17. We're just going to start with the, the basic principle of discipleship, and that is the call. What is discipleship? So Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 17. And in Matthew 4, 17, you'll read that it says in there, And from that time, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then the Bible says that immediately they left their nets and followed him. Let's just break down this call from the beginning. Verse 17 says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when did Jesus begin to preach this message of repentance? This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 12 for your answer. When did Jesus begin to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Now, this is going to be interactive, so if you see the answer, if you want to say something, just go ahead and say it. So what does verse 12 say? When did he begin to preach? That's right. So when John was cast into prison, after Jesus heard that John was cast into prison, he went to Galilee and he began to preach. Now, what was the message that Jesus was preaching according to verse 17? What was the exact message that Jesus was preaching? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, whose message does that sound similar to? The message of John the Baptist. Actually, Jesus takes up the same exact message that John the Baptist was preaching before he was put into prison. Now I have a question for you. What is the difference between the message of Jesus and the message of John? Now it's the same exact words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what is the difference? What was John's mission on earth? That's right, to prepare the way for the Savior, right? To tell the people that the Savior was coming. And so John was saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, what John was saying was, in some future time in history, not too far away, the kingdom of heaven will be here. So the kingdom of heaven will be here soon. So John was talking about time. Now, Jesus is among them, and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if John is preparing the way for Jesus, why is Jesus preaching the same message that John is preaching? The difference between the message of Jesus and the message of John is the difference between time and proximity. In other words, when John was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was speaking about time, at hand. In other words, it's going to come at some time in the future. But when Jesus was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Proximity. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is among you. Steps to Christ says, when God sent Jesus, he sent all of heaven in that one gift. Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. And so when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near, he's no longer talking about time. He's talking about proximity. I am near to you. I am among you. I am at hand. My hand can literally reach out and touch you. And so here Jesus begins to preach this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I have a trick question for you. I'm letting you know in advance that it's a trick question. What comes first? Repentance or the kingdom of heaven coming near? Okay, if you read the text, what, what word comes first? Repentance, right? But it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in other words, it's saying repent because... The kingdom of heaven is among you. So what really comes first? Repent. 
the kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So for example, if someone ran in here and said, everybody go to the exits for the building is burning. What comes first? Us going to the exits or the building starting to burn? The building starting to burn. Okay, so the kingdom of heaven comes before the call to repentance. Why is this an important principle? For a disciple, who takes the first step in the disciple's journey? Jesus always takes the first step. This is the first principle of discipleship that we must understand. Jesus always takes the first step. The theme of the Bible, the theme of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation can be wrapped up in one phrase. God pursues His people. You are not here on your own power. You are here because God wants you to be here. You are here because God has taken the first step. God has drawn you towards Him. God has lavished His goodness upon us. And the goodness of God does what? Leads us to repentance. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. So the first principle of discipleship is that God, Jesus, always takes the first step. Now, in Matthew 4, 18-20, Jesus gives us a living example of this principle. Verse 18 says what? Verse 18 says, And Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and He saw two brothers. So who takes the first step in this journey? Jesus. Jesus comes to where they are. And He comes to Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and He says unto them, Oh no, before we get there. What were, what were the, these brothers doing? What specific activity were these brothers doing according to the Word of God, according to verse 18? Okay, they were casting their nets into the sea. So now, real quick, what did those nets represent to those men? Just let's list some things. What did those nets represent to those men that day by the sea? Okay, their livelihood. What else? Excuse me? Energy. Okay, exerting energy. Very good. What else did those nets represent to those men? Part of what makes them who they are. Why does the Bible say they were casting their nets into the sea? Read, go ahead and read the verse. Why does the Bible say they were casting their nets into the sea? It says they were casting their nets into the sea because they were fishermen. That's who they were, so that's what they did. Ultimately, those nets represented their identity. They were casting their nets into the sea because they were fishermen, because their father was a fisherman, because his father was a fisherman, and his father was a fisherman. Their identity was wrapped up in their activity. Their identity was wrapped up in their heredity. Their identity was wrapped up in their culture. They were casting their nets into the sea because they were fishermen. What nets identify our lives today? For those of you who are in college, when you meet somebody new in college, what's one of the first questions you ask them or that they ask you? What's your major? Why do we want to find out what people's major is? Because we want to put them in our little cubbyhole of identity. Oh, you're an art major. Okay, I know what you're all about. Or, okay, you're a pre-med major or you're a nursing major. And as we hear what people's majors are, we like putting them in our cubbyholes of identity. These nets represented these fishermen's identity. What nets identify your life today? Is it your major? Is it your culture? Is it your family? Growing up, I had many nets that identified me. I had an identity crisis 
as a teenager. I remember I, I grew up in the, I was like an adolescent going through the puberty in the early 90s. And I grew up in um, Staten Island, New York. And I had an identity crisis. Every one of you who's gone through that experience know that you wake up one day and you look at yourself in the mirror and you ask that question, who is this person looking back at me? And I decided, who am I? Who should I become? And at that time, there was this like really big um, heavy metal movement. And I said, yeah, I'm going to be a headbanger. And so I went out and I bought a black trench coat. Actually, I got my mom to buy me a black trench coat. And I bought all like the, the cassette tapes, like Motley Crue and, and Metallica. And I started growing my hair out. And I started hanging out with, you know, headbangers and stuff. But my hair doesn't fall. It just grows out. And so I, it just never really worked for me, the headbanging thing. And it was just, it just didn't fit. And so I said, no, you know, I'm not going to be a headbanger. So I had moved to another school. And, and in this school, there was a lot of, you know, thugs. And so I was like, I'm going to be a thug. And so I had my mom go out and buy me like the baggiest jeans. And I put them on backwards because that was what thugs did back then. Yeah, it was crazy. And I got the tightest fade I could, the tightest little fade. And I walked around trying to thug it. But as hard as I tried to be hard... I had this baby face and nobody bought in to my identity as a hip hopper, as a thug. No matter how many rhymes I memorized, no matter how good I could deliver the rhymes, I just, I just looked completely fake. So I tried finding my identity in my culture. I'm, I was born in Chile, South America. My dad is Italian. But where I grew up, you were either Italian or Puerto Rican. And so w when I went to elementary school, it was a school full of Italians. And so they'd be like, yo, man, are you Italian or Puerto Rican? I'd be like, I'm Italian, man. But my sister went to high school with a bunch of Puerto Ricans. So when I would go over there to visit her, they'd be like, yo, man, you Boricua, you Puerto Rican? And I was like, yeah, man, I'm Boricua, man, I'm Puerto Rican. <laughs> And I'm not even Puerto Rican, but I, I wanted to find my identity in my culture. And so I tried all these ways to find my identity. And it failed. I failed miserably time and time again to find my identity in music, in culture. And then I met Jesus. And when I found my identity in Jesus, I realized who I was meant to be. And so here we have Jesus. He comes to these disciples. They're casting their nets into the sea because that's their identity. And what is Jesus' invitation to them? The Bible says, And Jesus said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So does Jesus come to them and say, follow me and I will make you carpenters for men? Does Jesus say to them, follow me and I will make you tax collectors for men? No. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, Jesus isn't coming to them and asking them to change who they are. But he wants to re-identify who they are. He wants to recreate their identity in him. You may be black, Hispanic, American. That's fine. As long as you're a black, Hispanic, American, Asian for Jesus. Because Jesus wants to take who you are and use who you are to reach other people who can identify with who you are. So here's the call. Jesus says unto them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So let's just break down. In your worksheet there it says, what are the three aspects of the call? Alright, so, so let's just break down the call. First Jesus says, follow me. 
And then he said, okay, so let's just, let's just do follow me. Follow me is the call of the Savior. That is the call of the Savior. That is the initial call that Jesus makes to each and every one of us. Follow me. When Jesus came to these disciples, these men, they weren't disciples yet, they were casting their nets into the sea. And Jesus came unto them and he said, follow me. So when Jesus called them to follow, he created in them a crisis of commitment. He gave them another option. He says, you don't have to toil at your nets anymore. I want to give you another option. And that option is me. So Jesus says, follow me. That is the call of the Savior. And then Jesus says, and then get better. Does he say, and then you and I will make you something else. What does Jesus say? He says, follow me and I will make you. That is the call of the sanctifier. Jesus says, if you will take this one commitment to follow me, I will do the work in you that will change you into someone you never imagined you could be before. The one work of the disciple of Jesus is this, to follow. If we will just choose to follow Jesus, He promises us that He will do the work of sanctification in our hearts. Jesus says unto them, follow me and I will do the work. Your one job, your one work is to follow. And if you will just follow, I will save you and I will change you into something you were not before. What is that thing? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That is the call of the sender. Jesus doesn't save us just unto ourselves. He saves us for the sake of the salvation of others. The ultimate glory that we can give God, the ultimate honor that we can give God is to reflect His character in such a way that by living our life, we are calling other people to follow us on the journey. The three aspects of the call, follow me, is the call of the Savior. And I will make you, is the call of the sanctifier. Fishers of men, is the call of the sender. And what does the Bible say happened as a result of the call? What did they do? The Bible says that immediately they left their nets and followed Him. Now, let's understand something. Did Jesus come to these disciples and say, listen... Let me just tell you everything that's wrong with your nets. Let me show you all the ways that your nets are inferior to what I have to offer. And then you can come and follow me. Did Jesus even address the nets? Jesus didn't even mention the nets. He didn't even address the nets. All he said was follow me. Because you see, repentance... While repentance is a forsaking of our sins, it must primarily be a turning to Jesus. Repentance is a change in direction. But unless that direction is towards Jesus, we're going to end up back at our nets again. And so the Bible says that immediately they left their nets and followed Him. In other words, in order for them to follow Jesus, they had to leave their nets behind. What if they tried, what if they said, you know what, Jesus, we're going to follow you, but we're just going to try and drag our nets behind us as we follow? What eventually would happen? Well, their nets would probably get stuck, right? Somewhere along the journey. And, the, and these disciples would have to make a decision Am I going to hold on to my nets, or am I going to follow Jesus? The question for you is Where are you on the spectrum? Of this journey. Where are you today on the spectrum of this journey? Maybe you're here. Maybe you've, you've been toiling at your nets. 
You've been trying to forge out your own identity in this world. You've been trying to find that success, whether it's in your career or in your family or in your academic life. You've been seeking to find your identity in your social cliques. You've been seeking to find your identity in your culture, in your MySpace page. And you realize that your nets are broken. And Jesus is giving you an other option. And that option is to follow Him. Maybe you have taken the step. Maybe you've taken the leap of faith. Maybe you've made the commitment to follow Jesus wherever He goes. And you are here. Jesus is trying to change you into something that you were not before. You see, you can tell the work that He's doing in your heart. But there is some issue or some wall or something that you can't let go of. And the work is becoming difficult. Or maybe you are here and Jesus has offered to do the work for you and you've taken the work back and you said, no, Jesus, I want to make myself into the fisher of men. Or you say, no, it's my responsibility to make myself a fisher of men. Jesus reminds us that your responsibility is to follow him. Does that mean waking up early and having a devotional life with him? Yes. Does that mean finding a place where you can experience the presence of God in your life? Yes. Does that mean following Him through the pages of Scripture, through deep Bible study? Yes. These are all ways that we follow Jesus. But none of these things are works unto salvation. All these things do is place us in the environment in which Jesus Christ can do the work of changing our hearts. Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. And the purpose of this seminar is to help us understand the process by which we grow. The process by which Christ changes our hearts and turns us into fishers of men. And now we're going to begin. I know that was crazy. That was just the intro. All right, so let's, let's get our worksheets out again. And let's talk about competence. So in the journey of a disciple, in the life of a disciple... Competence is really the heart of discipleship. Spiritual competence is the heart of discipleship. Competence is the process by which we allow Jesus to make us fishers of men. Alright, so let's talk about what is competence. Anyone? What is like a basic definition of competence? Okay, to understand, what else? Okay, ability to do something. So competence would entail both understanding how to do something and then being able to do it well. All right? And that's why if you are a nurse, you have to be a competent nurse. If you're a nursing major, they make you go and do clinicals and your rotations because it's one thing to, to be able to describe you know, how to draw blood. And it's another thing to be able to do it. Now, I, I work in an Adventist college and I wish that our theology majors could have the same kind of clinical, clinical rotations that our nursing majors had. Because then we as theology majors would realize that we may know how to talk about how to do stuff, but we don't always know how to do stuff. So why is it so important that we become competent Christ followers? Who would like to look up 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? Actually, let's all look up 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Yeah, would you like to read it for us? First Corinthians 11, verse 1 says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. What? This is Paul speaking. And he says to his members, the members of his church, of his community of believers, he says unto them, Follow me, as I follow Christ. That, my friends, is a bold statement. Many times we say, no, 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 don't follow me. Don't look at me. Just look at Jesus. I'm going I'm to fail you. I'm going to mess up. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. But here Paul comes to us and he with boldness says, follow me as I follow Christ. That is the statement 
of a competent disciple. Why is competence so important? Because our example will reveal to people that Christianity works or doesn't work. You know why so many young people leave our church? It's because they don't believe that Christianity works. They don't believe that the gospel works. And you know why they don't believe that the gospel works? Because they don't see the gospel working in the life of their leaders and their parents and their teachers and their pastors. What are some of the consequences of incompetence in our church today? What are some of the consequences of incompetence in our church today? Bitterness, backsliding, infighting, division. Young people seeking their identity elsewhere because they cannot identify with the people who have been given the responsibility of caring for them. Spiritual competence is the heart of discipleship. Okay, so Jesus says, follow me. I mean, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Now we're going to talk about the core competencies. And in order to do that, we're going to look at a parable of Jesus to talk about the core competencies of a disciple. So let's look to Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Matthew 13, 1 through 9. Would you like to read that for us, sir? Here you go. Yes, sir. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Thank you. Now, this afternoon, Justin is going to go through three of these soils, and he's going to get into specifics about what they represent. What we're going to do this morning is we are just going to give an overview of these soils, And we are going to talk about how they bring out the three core competencies of a disciple for Jesus. So, question one. According to the parable... I'm sorry. Let's let's first identify the four soils represented in the parable. So, what was the first type of ground or earth that the seed landed on? The wayside, right? And what does the wayside mean? The path. So the first seed landed on the path. Where did the second seed land? Stony places. Okay, rocky places. Where did the third seed land? Among thorns and weeds. Okay, where did the fourth seed land? In good soil. Okay, now let's read Jesus' explanation of this parable. Instead of me like just trying to tell you what it means, let's just read what Jesus tells us it means. Verse 18 of chapter 13 says, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no roots in him, but endures only for a while. For when trouble And persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received the seed among thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty, that which was sown. 
Now let's answer these questions. Question one is, what does the soil represent in this parable? You will find the answer in verse 19. It's talking about the path. It says, the evil one came and snatched that which was sown where? In his heart. Okay, so the soil represents us. Okay, the soil represents our heart. Alright, so one of the first lessons in competence that you need to understand is you are dirt. Okay? You are dirt. The soil represents our hearts. What does the Bible say the seed represents? The Word of God, specifically the Gospel. Right? So the seed represents the Gospel, the Word of God. Now the question is, what is the role of the sower or farmer? Okay, to spread, sow the seed. The role of the sower is to sow the seed. And if you read Christ Object Lessons, it talks about the other role of the farmer is to prepare the soil. We don't have time to get into that. We'll touch on it maybe a little bit. Question four is, what is the outcome that the farmer is looking for? Ultimately, what is our farmer looking for? A crop, a harvest. It says that he's looking for more of that which was sown. So he's not just looking for fruit, but he's looking for fruits which have seeds in them, which multiply, which cause more plants, which causes more fruit. So ultimately, what he is looking for is more of that which was sown. He's looking for more. He's looking for multiplication. Okay, now let's just really quickly run down each soil and what they represent. Verse 13, 4 says, As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Anyone who hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So question one is, what is it about the path that makes it impossible for the seed to penetrate? Why can't the seed penetrate? What is the path? Hard, right? And how does a path become this way? Question two. By being trodden upon, right? Again, Christ's Object Lessons, I really recommend you read. She has five chapters in there, four chapters in there, just on, on this principle of the seed and the plant. It says that the path becomes a path by being stepped on over and over again. People walk the same way over and over again. Question is, under what conditions is the devil most likely to come and snatch away the seed that is sown in people's hearts? That's right. When their hearts are hard to the word. Have you ever had a testimony? Something that happened in your personal life that, that really touched you and changed you. And you shared it with like a friend of yours or a family member. And the look on their face was like, in one ear out the other. And you're like, this means so much to me. How come you're not getting it? That happens to me all the time when I'm teaching class. I teach something that is like an epiphany to me and, and I have a student that's just like sitting there like, and just like staring. That's called programmed non-response in evangelism. Programmed non-response. We've become so used to squelching the convictions of the Spirit of God. That when we start hearing anything about Jesus and the cross and salvation, we automatically stop responding. Our hearts become hard. Literally, our brain forms synapses and there's a pathway in our brain that leads one stimuli such as, Jesus loves you, and it goes straight to, I don't care. And eventually, whenever we hear Jesus loves you, without even thinking about it, we go straight to, I don't care. There's, there are pathways in our brain that have, been walked, that have been taken so often that we become hard to the gospel and we don't understand it. Okay, so that's what happens with that. So let's talk about rocky soil. Matthew 13, 5 says, Some fell along rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. 
The explanation, verse 20, The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. So question one is, which part of the plant does this part of the parable focus on? The roots, right? It says, because he had no root. That is why he withered away. Now, what part of our experience do you think this part of the plant represents? Where do roots grow generally? At the foundation. And where, like, can you see them generally? No, they grow underground, right? So the roots represent our secret life. Our private walk. Each one of us has a secret life. Each one of us has a part of our life experience that nobody knows about. And it is that secret life that ultimately will determine our success or failure as disciples for Jesus. So the roots represent the secret life. Now, question three is, what do the roots do for the plant? Okay, so they provide stability. What else do the roots do for the plant? By, how does it help it grow? And nourishment. So the, the roots ultimately provide two things, nourishment and stability for the plant. I've seen like on TV down in Miami when they have like the big storms and the big hurricanes and everything is just flying off and roofs and cars and stuff and then I see these palm trees and they're just like they're just like this you know but they're still there but the palm trees are like bent all over but they're still there that's because the roots of a palm tree go deep and far and when the storms come they're flexible enough to withstand the storm, and their roots are deep and wide enough to keep them from getting uprooted. Now, question four says, what is the function of the roots in this parable? It should say, what, are the, what is the function of the rocks? Okay, so what is the function of the rocks in this parable? So if the roots represent our private life, our private walk, the underground experience, what do you think the rocks represent, or what do the rocks do? All right, let's just go with what do they represent. The rocks represent secret sin. Secret sin will ruin your relationship with God. Cherished sin is what Spirit of Prophecy calls it in the book Christ Object Lessons. The rocks represent cherished sin. In other words, we may present ourselves to the world as Christians, as followers, as disciples, but in our secret thoughts, in our secret life, when nobody else is watching, we hold on to these pet sins, these pet attitudes, these pet thoughts. And those things stunt the depth that our roots can go in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes. Uh, did you cover question four on the last section? The how does hard soil? Ooh, that's a good one. What time is it? Ten ten. So I have twenty minutes. Okay. So how does hard soil become soft again? That's a good question. That's question four on the last section. Um, how does hard soil become soft again? Like if you are, if you want to plant a garden and you have like your lawn right there, and you want to turn that into a garden, what do you have to do? Okay, you have to water it, and you have to break it. You have to break the soil. So how does hard soil become soft again? It gets broken. How do hard hearts become soft again? They get broken. Now, it is not our job to go around breaking people's hearts. Okay? But, again... I, I, this is only an overview. Please read Christ Object Lessons. In there it says that it is our responsibility 
to prepare the soil of people's hearts, not by breaking them per se, but by living a life that reflects the character of Jesus Christ. And it says in there that when people whose hearts are hard see in us the reflection of Christ's character, they will be converted. Their hearts will be broken and they will be receptive to what God is offering them. And let me just take this opportunity to read you a quote. And it's taken from Christ Object Lessons. Let me see if I have it. And it's speaking to that very thing. And I'm going to stall because I can't find it. Okay, I'll read it to you guys. Oh, here it is. It says, The wheat develops first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. The object of the husbandman in the sowing of the seed and the culture of the growing plant is the production of grain. He desires bread for the hungry and seed for future harvests. So the divine husbandman looks for a harvest as the reward of his labor and sacrifice. Christ is seeking to reproduce himself in the hearts of men. And he does this through those who believe in him. The object of the Christian life is to bear fruit. The reproduction of Christ's character in the believer that it may be reproduced in others. There can be no growth or fruitfulness in the life that is centered in self. If you have accepted Christ as a personal Savior, you are to forget yourself and try to help others. Talk of the love of Christ. Tell of His goodness. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately He putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of Himself in His church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It says, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. In other words, when the work of the seed does its work, and when our hearts spring up, and we, f- we bear fruit for God inside of each one of those each one of that fruit, those fruits, whatever, is a seed. And that seed is the potential for proliferation. And we're about to get to that. So let's just run through the thorny ground real quick. Or the weeds. Matthew chapter 13 verse 7 says, Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plant. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. So what does Jesus say the weeds represent? The worries of life and what else? The deceitfulness of wealth. Okay, so do they represent the worries of life and wealth? No. They represent the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. What is the deceitfulness of wealth? Yes. The deceitfulness of wealth is the idea that more stuff will make you happy. The deceitfulness of wealth is the idea that more stuff, more stature, more money, more clothes will make you satisfied. Now each one of us in here knows that money can't buy love and money can't buy happiness. But if I had a million dollars in my hand, yeah, something, that things would go much smoother. So if the deceitfulness of wealth is an idea and not really the wealth itself. Can it be that people living in the ghetto are caught up in the deceitfulness of wealth? Could it be that the poorest person who has nothing can be caught up in the deceitfulness of wealth? This world runs on the deceitfulness of wealth. Men and women wake up every morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, get ready, get in their cars, drive for an hour to go to a job that they do not like and work with people who they cannot stand to make money that they have already spent so that they can catch up and buy a car that they do not need and a house that they will never live in because of the deceitfulness of wealth. The rat race 
that is the foundation for the economy of this country is based on the deceitfulness of wealth. So Jesus says that these weeds represent the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Now what part of the plant sorry, do the, do the weeds affect? What part of the plant do the weeds affect? Just think about it. Okay, so let's imagine here um, a plant. I'm, gonna, I'm a very poor drawer, but just bear with me. Okay, so here we have our plant. Roots. Flower. Okay, and then here we have the weeds. So what part of the plant do the weeds affect? Okay, so they affect the, the outer portion, but they also affect what? The roots. So they affect both the private and the public part of the plant. What is unseen and what is seen. Now I may have to skip a few questions here. Now, a next question that I want to ask you all is, why did the rocky soil plants die? So, so first of all, we know that it was because they had no root. But what specific thing caused them to die? The sun. Now, what did Jesus say that the sun represented? What did Jesus say the sun represented? If you look at the verse. He says, But when trouble and persecution come because of the word, he quickly falls away. So the sun represents trouble and persecution in this parable. Okay? Now, for the plant that was in rocky soil, because it had no roots, it was too, there was too much sun for that plant. And it died. So here we have the plant that is caught up in the deceitfulness of wealth. What do you think is going to be the effect of its exposure to the sun if it's surrounded by weeds and thorns? Not enough sun. We're caught up in the deceitfulness of wealth. We do not find it a joy to suffer for the sake of the kingdom of God. We do not find it a joy to suffer for God's kingdom. We run away from suffering like it's the plague. Okay, we must continue. Good soil. Matthew 13, 8 says, Still some seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times that which was sown. So question one again is, what is it that the farmer is looking for in the plant? A harvest. More of that which was sown. Let's go straight to question three is, what is the relationship between these plants and the sun? Just enough for growth. So was, there, was the sun hotter when the, root, when the plant, when the stony ground grew up? No. Was it colder when the plant in the weeds grew up? No. It was the same sun but the difference was how the plants responded to that sun. Could it be that God allows trials and tribulations to prepare us for growth? Could it be that trials and tribulations are God's specified providential tools to cause us to grow? Time? All right, let's just recap further analysis. So what is the main point of this parable? What then are the core competencies of a disciple? So let's break down the core competencies of a disciple. So here we have our plant. And in our plant, what's the first thing we have down here? Roots. Roots. So the first core competency, competency of a disciple is the private life. And the work of the roots causes growth. And so here we have the plant. And the plant represents our public walk. When we nurture and cultivate 
our private, personal relationship with Jesus, there will be a public walk of integrity. Our public walk will reflect our private life. Now, we could have a public walk that looks like a nice, fine, healthy plant, but in the end, it will be revealed where our roots lie. Okay, and then finally we have the fruit. And the fruit is our potential for proliferation. We tried to stick with the peas here. It could also mean potential for multiplication, but we like alliteration. Okay? So the three core competencies of a disciple is the private life, the public walk, and the potential for proliferation. Now let's look at this formula here real quick. The formula is, you see there it says seed plus soil equals plant. And in the blanks there, what does the seed represent? The Word of God. Okay, the Gospel. What does the soil represent? Our hearts. So the Word plus our hearts equals a new life in Christ. Just like the seed plus the soil equals a plant, the Word plus our hearts equals new life in Christ. Is the plant the seed? No, it's a plant. Is the plant the soil? No, it's the soil. When we accept the gospel into our hearts and receive it, and our hearts are prepared, and we allow Jesus to do the work of removing the rocks and the weeds, something new begins to happen in our hearts. That something new is called the new life in Christ. It's time. Oh, yes. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Christ's Object Lessons, it talks about how the rocks represent cherished sins. In other words, we're convicted by the gospel. We receive the gospel. We accept the gospel, but we want to hold on to those nets. There's, there's sin in our life that we know is sin, and yet we talk ourselves into believing that we can do both, that we can both serve God and serve sin. Paul says, you cannot, you cannot drink of the Lord's cup and of the devil's cup. Yes, you had another question or a piggyback. All right. Okay, that's fine. What do you do about it? Okay, very good. <clears throat> that's a critical question. I'm glad you asked. I know we're running out of time, but let me just talk to it really quick. What does the parable say we are? What are we, according to the parable? Dirt. Okay, we are dirt. We are the soil. Our hearts are the soil. Now, if you have a plot of land and it's full of stones, does the soil decide, you know what, these stones, man, I need to get these out of here if I want to grow. And does the soil start shooting rocks out of it spontaneously? Who does the work of removing the rocks? Jesus comes and He does the work of removing the rocks in our lives. What is our job? Our job is to surrender to Jesus every day to open our hearts to Him and say, Lord, I realize that I have rocks in my heart. And I realize that because I am soil, I am powerless to remove the rocks from my heart. And so I want to surrender to You to allow You to do the work that You are longing to do in my heart. You know what keeps us from growing and what keeps the rocks in our hearts is that we resist the Holy Spirit. We resist the work of God. We resist what Christ wants to do in our hearts. But if we will not resist, page, Steps to Christ, page 27, if we will not resist, Christ will draw us to Himself and He will change our lives. I'm sorry I can't go further, but there, there is more on that. 
Um, at this time, we have to close. So let's just bow our heads for prayer. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you for the call of discipleship that you have given to each one of us. I pray, Lord, that as we cultivate our inner lives, that you will teach us the true meaning of repentance, that you will teach us the true meaning of surrender, that, Father, the word of God will take root in our hearts, that you will grant us the nurture and stability that we so need in order to bear fruit for your kingdom and reflect your character so that you can come again. I pray for these gifts and I thank you for them in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.